Um, over the course of uh, my lifetime, I've seen television portray the family from one extreme to the other. As they say, then there was uh, Ozzie and Harriet Nelson and uh, Ward and June Cleaver with her high heels and pearls and uh, Dick and Laura Petrie with her, oh, Rob. You know, and, uh, and there was even a show that uh, Robert Young starred in that was called Father Knows Best. Can you believe there was a time in our country where fathers actually knew best? Wow, what a refreshing thought. That was then and this is now, and according at least to uh, producers and writers for such television shows as Roseanne, The Simpsons, Married with Children, Father No Longer Knows Best, in their view, Father's a moron. And uh, that's kind of the way that it has gone from then to now. And, uh, you know, as we ask the question, what is the ideal family, and with all the debate in society and our culture today as to who deserves benefits to be extended to them and all the things that we read about on a regular basis, it's important to realize that God has never changed his view of the family. And uh, the one who created the institution, you know, actually knows better than any of us how it is supposed to function. God's ideal family from the very beginning was that there would be a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. A husband was to be the leader of the family with the wife, a helpmate called alongside to help support him and encourage him and love him and uh, to encourage him to assume the responsibilities that God has given them, given him. And on top of that, if children came along and they were blessed with children, then children were to obey their parents. That was the plan. There was a parallel authority that children were to obey their parents, the mother and father. And this is uh, to be a lifetime partnership. That was God's plan from the very beginning. And separation was to occur only when Jesus returned or he called one of those people home to be with him. Now, it's important to understand this because as we close our study in this first letter that was written to the Thessalonians, we learn that God's idea for the family also carries over into his idea for the church. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'll show you what I'm talking about as we discover what at least according to God, and not according to Norman Lear or Archie Bunker, according to God, we'll discover what really it means to be all in the family. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, We'll complete this particular lesson in this, in this section of, of uh, this letter with these words, starting with verse 12. We read this. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 
as we go back through the beginning of this and we see in verse 12 he says but we request of you brethren one of paul's favorite words was the or the idea of a brethren or a brother and what he's talking about is in actually 60 sometimes in his letters he uses the word brother and in, the, in these two epistles that he writes to the to the thessalonian church he uses the word brother 27 times and in paul's view god's church or this assembly these people that are called out of the world in God's view, is a church. Not only is the church or an assembly or a gathering, but actually is a family. You know, in the book of the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, For as many as received him, speaking of Jesus Christ, for as many as received him, to them he gave, God gave the privilege of being called children of God, to those who believe in his name. In the book of Romans, in chapter 8, we read that we, as those who have received Christ, can call God Father or Abba or really Daddy, that we have an intimate relationship with God. You know, the psalmist said, the Lord is my shepherd. It was a personal relationship. And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about a family, an intimate knowledge of God. When we talk about the parable of the prodigal son, for example, it's really a parable that of, of, a, of a faithful father who continued to love a son who had made decisions that weren't good in his life and went his own direction. And yet his father, even when he was far away, ran to receive him back to himself. It really is a story or a parable of a father-son relationship. And so as we think of this in the context of what he's talking about, the idea of family is clearly taught all throughout the Bible. And we need to recognize and understand that and appreciate that. And it's interesting because God has some definite commands for his family, what we are supposed to be doing as family members while we wait for the day that Jesus returns for us, his kids. Remember in John chapter 14, Jesus said this, I go and prepare a place for you. You know, don't be troubled. Uh, don't be concerned. Uh, let not your heart be broken. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it weren't so, I wouldn't tell you that. But because I go and prepare a place for you, I will one day come again for you so that you will be with me. That is the word of God himself. He's made a promise to us, that family relationship, that one day where he, he is, we will always be. And so as we wait that day, which is this whole letter that he's been trying to encourage these people, that one day Jesus is indeed going to fulfill his promise and come back the same way that he left. He's going to come back for his people, and we're going to be together with him as a family for all of eternity. And what we need to recognize and understand is that while we wait for that day, God has some definite ideas of what he expects his kids to be doing while he's away. And it's no different than any parent who leaves and says, while I'm gone, here's what I want you to do. I need you to vacuum, I need you to dust, I need you to clean your room, I need you to take... Hey, while I'm gone, here's the list of things that I expect you to be busy doing that when I come back, I'll find that it was done and I can say, well done, my good and faithful young child. See, that's exactly what God's trying to get across to us, that there are some definite things we need to be busy doing while we wait for the day that he returns. And that's what he's here to tell us about in this particular section. Now, before we examine these thoughts, I need to make something perfectly clear. We're going to review a series of commandments, a series of commands that are given to us, 22 of them, actually, as we'll go through and see, that are just for Christians and Christians alone. And it's important that we recognize that and understand it. These are not for those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God does not command people who have not entered into a relationship with him 
to do anything other than one thing that he, got to, he wants to get across to you. For example, it would be no different than if Linda and I went out for the day. I wouldn't tell someone else's kids to do things for us. It wouldn't make any sense. But I don't hesitate to tell our kids what we expect of them and what we want them to do while we're gone. God doesn't tell anybody who's not his child what to be doing while he's gone. And in fact, here's the only thing he cares about for those who have never put their faith and trust in Christ. Turn with me for a second back to the book of Galatians. It's important because it ties in this whole idea of these commandments that God's going to give. But look at Galatians chapter 4 as we think about Christmas and what it's all about upcoming in the next couple of weeks. But in Galatians chapter 4, a few books back, we read these words starting with verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. There's the idea again. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, or Father. There's that relationship that he's talking about, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The purpose that he sent Jesus Christ into the world is to redeem those or buy back those who are lost and under the law. He goes on in, in earlier in verse... 24 of chapter 3, if you look over there, he says this, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, what? That we may be justified by faith. It's important to understand this. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the only thing that God requires of you is that you would believe in Jesus Christ. Now, what he has done is he has given us his laws or his commandments in an effort to show us that we cannot possibly live up to the standard that God has set for entrance into heaven. So what he does is he lays out, and you know, you ask people all the time, hey, what, what do you need to do to get into heaven? Well, you know, they'll say, well, I, I, I just need to follow or obey the Ten Commandments. Say, well, you know, do you know what they are? And they don't even know what they are. But they're going to use that as their standard to get into heaven. Oh, you're going to obey the Ten Commandments? Great, what are they? I don't know. Well, don't you think if that's what it takes to get into heaven, you'd at least sit down and learn what they are? And they don't even know what they are. And then when they find out what they are, and you ask them, thou shalt not lie. Hey, have you ever lied? Uh, no. Well, now you just did. <laughs> there you go, gotcha. Have you ever stolen everything, anything? Have you ever coveted something that somebody else has or wanted something that somebody else has? Have you always honored your father and your mother? Have you always put God first in your life? Have you always kept the Sabbath day holy? Have you always done all these things? Hey, oh, uh, no. Well, then you've got a problem if you think that's what it's going to take to get into heaven. Therefore, look what he says. The law has become our teacher or tutor to what? To lead us to Christ. We are hopelessly lost if it, if it takes our performance to get into heaven based on obeying God's laws. We can't do it. So what he's saying is God uses those laws to help show us that we'll never get into heaven based on our own performance. So the law becomes a teacher or a tutor that leads us to what? It says that leads us to Jesus Christ. What? That we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we no longer need that law. We no longer need a tutor because Jesus has already come. For you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying? He's saying that the only way that you'll ever get into heaven is the same thing that Jesus said himself, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets into heaven but through a relationship with me. It comes by faith, and faith comes by hearing the word of God. And so that all ties in together. The only way you and I will ever become a child of God is to believe in Jesus Christ. 
If you have not done that, then what I'm about to share with you doesn't apply to you because you're going to confuse yourself and think that if I just do these 22 things, that somehow I'll be made right before God. No, you won't, and you won't be able to do it anyway, and all it's going to do is show you that you need help, and the person that's going to help you is the one who came to save you, and that's Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you. If you believe that, and you believe that he rose from the dead, and he has victory over death, he has victory over sin, he can forgive your sins, the Bible says you enter into a relationship with God. How? By believing what he says about Jesus Christ. The only work that's pleasing to God is that we would have faith or believe what God says about Jesus Christ and him alone. Hey, have you put your trust or faith that the only way that I'll be forgiven of sin, the only way that I'll get into heaven is by accepting and believing in Jesus Christ and in him alone? If you have done that, the Bible says that you are now a child of God to those who believe in his name. If you have not done that, then what I'm about to talk about, don't even pay attention to because all it's going to do is confuse you. So now, for those of us who are children of God, what he wants to do is he wants to help us to understand that this is what we're supposed to be doing while we wait for him to return. Now, stop and think about this. God's children are not to live according to the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments alone. We have to live at a much higher plane than the Ten Commandments. And in fact, as we go through this section, you're going to see that there are 22 commandments just in this section alone of what God expects for us to be doing while we wait for him to come back or he takes us to be with him. This is just in this section. Can you imagine for a second? You leave three things for your kids to do, they go nuts. But God's saying, hey, here's 22 right here. How about trying these on for size? And they are all on the lower shelf, man. We're all going to be able to reach it and grab it. And you're going to have to do some major gymnastics not to understand what he's saying. Because this is about as simple as it gets. So it's one thing to be excited about looking for the day that Jesus is coming back for you. But you know what? In the meantime, while we're looking for that, we are also walking on the face of the earth. And we are to walk the walk at home and in our businesses, and in our classrooms, and on the athletic field, and in our neighborhoods, and out on the job site, wherever God has us walking, this is what he expects us to be doing. So don't miss it. So this passage, we're given some very specific instruction. Go back to 1 Thessalonians again, chapter 5. Now can you imagine, we have 22 commands that we're going to cover. This alone could be a whole series for me. So this is going to be a real challenge. The first thing that we see is this. In verses 12 and 13, we see the first thing that God expects of his family, or the essentials to, to make it all in the family, so to speak, is that there would be family leadership. Think about that. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. The New American Standard says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord, and give instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, and live in peace with one another. Without leadership, a family falls apart. There's no question about that. The father's the head of the home. The mother stands with them in love and cooperation. The children to obey their parents in the Lord. And this is the order that God has laid down. And for us to disturb this is to, is to come up with, and to come up with our own ideas is to ask for serious trouble. And as true as this is for the family, it's equally true for the family of God. God has ordained leadership for his family, which he calls the local church. And it's true that we're all one in Christ. And yet, all, and, and that we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, yet it's also true that the head of the church has given gifts to people 
who are given to his people, to the church, to exercise his will. And what you need to do is read sometimes Ephesians chapter 4 because it lays out very specifically how true that is. Just as a flock needs a shepherd, uh, so the family needs a leader. And as we go through all this, the question that has to be is this. What is my responsibility toward those who are in a spiritual leadership over me? What does God expect of me as I relate to them? And that's really the question that we're looking at here. And uh, don't forget, these are commands and these aren't suggestions. So as we go through it, let's take a look at them one at a time. The first thing that we notice in verse 12 is this. But we request of you, brethren, that you what? Number one, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instructions. So the first thing or the first commandment that we have is is that we appreciate those who are in a spiritual leadership position. You know, it's not surprising to me that God has to tell us to appreciate other people because we live in a world that we have to be told to appreciate one another. I mean, stop and think about it. We have Mother's Day to appreciate moms. We have Father's Day to appreciate dads. We have Boss's Day to appreciate bosses. We have Secretary's Day to appreciate secretary. We have, you know, we have every appreciation day you can think of we've got, and basically we need to have that because for the most part, we don't appreciate one another. Isn't that true? I mean, and then we don't even like being told to appreciate someone. Don't tell me to appreciate my mom on Mother's Day. I'll do it. I do it all year round. Yeah, right, ask mom. You know, we don't even like to be told to appreciate somebody because we don't like to appreciate one another. And so now here God is saying that we are told to appreciate those who labor among us and have oversight over us that we're told to appreciate them. And look what it says, that they diligently work among you. It carries with it the idea that they're among you, working with you, rolling up their sleeves, getting dirty, getting down and getting it done, and they're doing those things. And God says, hey, I want you to appreciate them. Spiritual leadership is a great responsibility. And, you know, and it's often difficult, and it's not easy to serve as a pastor or as a teacher or as an elder or as a deacon, as a, a leader in a small group. If anybody's ever done it, you know there's nothing easy about any of those responsibilities. It's, it's, sometimes it's just not fun. Let me give you an illustration. I'll, I'll, be, I'll, I'll use me personally because that's who I know almost better than anybody else. It's not easy to do this week after week. It's not easy to do this. You know, I've done it. This is almost 15 years I've done this. There's a lot of sacrifices that my families make, that I make every week to prepare to do this. There's nothing easy about this. And, uh, and we need to understand that it's, it's nothing easy about being in a position of responsibility in any area of life. There's nothing easy about it. You know, and, and in fact, uh, hey, I don't get paid to do this. My wife doesn't get paid to do the tapes. We don't get paid for the tapes that you guys buy to send your friends and family. I don't get a penny to do any of this. And I like what one lady told me several years ago, and I'm sure she was trying to encourage me, and she's an older woman, and she came up to me, and she said, hey, you know, I just want to tell you that there are some people in life who get paid to be good, and you, well, you're good for nothing. <laughs> and, and she smiled, and she just walked away. And I went, and I went, Thank you, I think. You know, and you kind of go, wait a minute. I don't, you know, we, we need to recognize and understand. Now, understand what I'm saying. You know, don't get, this isn't the old, old poor Chuck. This isn't what this is all about. This is about keeping into the context and trying to illustrate something to you so that you will understand what God's trying to get across. And that is this. I, I, obviously, I love this. I love doing what I do. 
I love the fact that God's gifted me to do this, to share this with you, because I get responses back like I did in the letters that you wrote and the book that Mary put together. And it's, and it's so exciting to be able to read that and see that God is faithful as his word goes out to change the hearts and the lives of people who hear it. And it's a wonderful thing to be a part of that, just to be a part of that, because I'm not all that. All that I'm doing, and don't say amen, you. All I'm doing is doing what God's gifted me to do, and that's just to share his word with you, and it's God's word that goes out and doesn't come back empty, and it's God's word that's changing your life and my life and everybody's life who listens to the word of God and obeys it. That's exciting to be part of all that. So don't misunderstand. This isn't an oh, poor me thing. But what it is is this. When you'll be amazed at how much energy that you and I can impart to another human being by simply telling them, thank you for what you do. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. I don't care if you're a parent, a teacher, a coach, and even a, a, a child, an employee, an employer. I don't care who you are. When somebody tells you, thank you, you just go, hey, this is worth it. A thank you. We need to become people, and this is not a suggestion, this is a command. We need to become people who appreciate one another. Thank you. <laughs> See, that's what it's all about. To appreciate one another. To say thank you. To build people up. The second thing we're also to do is this. And that you esteem them very highly in love. That you esteem them very highly in love. That you just love them for what they do. Because look, it says, because of their work. See, this is what's exciting to me. You don't have to love me for who I am. I don't even know how my wife does that. Or my kids. You don't have to love me for who I am but just love me for what I do. And that'll make it a lot easier for you to love me for what I do because if I'm faithful to do what God's called me to do and you're faithful to hear what God is telling you to do and you do it, your life has changed for the better because of it. And if for nothing else, all you need to do is love me because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and it's the work that I do, not who I am. See, that makes it a lot easier to love somebody for what they do. As a child, sometimes it's hard to love your parents for who they are but it's easy to love them for what they do. As an employee, it's hard to love your boss sometimes for who they are as people, but you know what? It's not hard to love them for what they do in your business. You see how it goes? The same with teachers, the same with coaches, the same with anybody around you. You love them for what they do, not for who they are. Because if we loved each other for who we are, we'd all stop loving each other real quick because we are really messed up sometimes. But that's what he says to do. That's what we're supposed to do. The third thing that we're supposed to do is this. We're to obey them. And that's what you'll find in Hebrews chapter 13. It says this in verse 17. Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves. Now, can you imagine for a second? This, don't ever forget the context when we're studying the Bible. This was a new church. These were people who maybe three weeks or four weeks are all people that one thing they had in common before Paul showed up there and began to teach them about Jesus Christ, the one thing they all had in common was that none of them were Christians. 
So when they gave their life to Christ and said, I believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and were baptized into the body of believers and became Christians, one of the most interesting things happened to them at that time. That is that God imparted through his spirit a gift to those people that were there. He gave gifts to whomever he wanted as he wished to do it. So all of a sudden, let's say this whole room of people, we all became Christians the same day. We all believed in Jesus Christ the same day. And God, at that time, imparted spiritual gifts to every one of us that same day any way that he wanted to. That would mean that some of us would have the gift to teach, and all of a sudden, that person would start to exercise that gift, and the rest of you are sitting there going like this. Who made you king? Who you think you are telling us what to do? We knew you. You were as lost as we were yesterday. Now, all of a sudden, you're standing up there, and you're trying to tell us what to do. Can you imagine everybody becoming Christian the same day? But here's the problem. I remember the first... I mean, I've been teaching this class for almost 15 years. That means that I was 15 years younger than I am now. Duh. See, this is the kind of stuff you've got to take home with you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and some of you are still older than me today. And you're even older than the 15 years that we shared together. Okay, now here's the deal. So 15 years ago, I'm just this young little whippersnapper kid with, with uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And so all these older people are sitting there going like this. <laughs> What's he think? He's going to tell us. Because we've been there and he hasn't. You know? <laughs> you know, you didn't say it then, but you haven't stopped saying it since then. You know, and, and so, and I go into like our Rams Bible study, and I start, and there's guys in there that are older than me. And they go, hey, we got this guy coming to teach our Bible study, and I come in, and they're all bigger and older than me, most of them. And they're all like, <laughs> but here's the exciting thing. You just open it up, and you start to lay it out. And when God's servant, led by God's spirit, calls us to obey God's word, then you better listen, because it has nothing to do with age. It has to do with obeying the Word of God. You see, so don't write people off. In fact, Timothy had that problem. Timothy was young. And the problem that Timothy had everywhere he went when he was trying to teach people God's Word, all the older people were sitting there going like this. What are you going to tell us? He said, I'm going to tell you the truth about the Word of God. They said, well, we're not going to listen to you because you don't know anything. And they were disobedient to the Word of God. And what Paul had to continually do was say, hey, stir up that passion within you. Tell people the truth about the Word of God. Who cares whether they want to believe you because of your age or not or their, your youthfulness or not? They have a bigger problem than that, and that is that they better check what you're saying against the Scripture because if it's the Word of God, they better be obeying the Word of God. And see, and as those people walked out of there, as you do when you, when you hear me teach the Word of God and God's Spirit convicts your heart, hey, this isn't a matter of, well, we're not going to believe this guy because he's young and we don't, we don't have to listen to him. This is a matter of, hey, this is the truth of the Word of God and you better be obedient to it because you've got a bigger problem than dealing with me because this isn't my stuff. I mean, this is the Word of God. And he says, you better appreciate them that labor among you and have oversight over you as they instruct you in the word of God. You better not only appreciate them, but you better love them for what they do. And not only better love them for what they do, you better obey what they say as long as what they say lines up with the word of God. Never misunderstand this truth. I am a human being like everybody else, and I can make a mistake as easily as anybody else. 
the people at Thessalonica weren't as noble-minded as the people in Berea. As Paul shared the scriptures with them, the people in Berea examined it daily to make sure that what Paul was saying lined up with the word of God. Don't you ever leave here, take anything for my word or because I said it without examining it against the word of God. If what I tell you is in the word of God and the spirit of God convicts your heart and you examine the word of God and God says this is truth, you better do it, then you better do it because it's God talking to you and not me. And i got to do the same thing as I study and prepare it. I'm reading it going, hey, God's speaking to me just as much as he's speaking to you. Every human being is, is always going to make a mistake. But it doesn't mean that what he's teaching and preaching isn't truth if it says it in the word of God. I mean, that'd be like taking a pastor who falls into some sin and say, hey, you know what? Every, everything that they ever spoke on and anything that they ever did in their ministry, uh, you can throw it all out the window. That's nonsense. If the man was teaching and speaking from the Word of God, you better listen to it as the Word of God. Because he made a decision that was wrong before God doesn't disqualify everything that he preached and taught, and it doesn't mean his tapes aren't valid and his books aren't valid that he wrote. That's stupidity, and that's nonsense. And if it's the Word of God, then you better listen to it and obey it accordingly. Now the question is, God says, hey, you know what? The leaders can't do this all on their own. And that's where we involve this idea of family partnership that you see in verses 14 through 16. And as we look at this, we read these words, and we urge you, brethren, to warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. I like this because I can relate to this. I need sometimes to be told just exactly what God expects of me. Don't confuse it. Don't make it hard to understand. Just bark it out at me as if you're giving me orders, and that's exactly what he's doing here. He's saying, I urge you, brothers, what? Warn those. Number one, warn those who are idle. The New American Standard, which I, I like better, says this. It says, admonish the unruly. There are going to be people that need some help, and the first group of people is this, the unruly. These are the people that are out of line with the will of God. These are the people, according to God, it says we are to admonish the unruly, those who are out of step with what God wants them to do. It carried with it the idea of a soldier who is given orders and then decides to walk their own way. They're told specifically what to do, and they say, I'm not going to go that direction, I'm going to go this direction, and the word means to be out of line with the will of God. He says that we are to admonish those among us who are out of line, they're out of order. We've said that to our children, hey, you know what, that comment was out of line, that's out of order. You know, you hear it in a courtroom, hey, that's out of order. We see it when a boss deals with an employee sometimes, hey, that's out of line, what you just said is out of line. What does that mean? It means that it doesn't fall under the protocol of the authorities that's been set up and established. He's saying, first of all, we are to admonish the unruly. Tell them, hey, you know what? You're out of line. And we need to recognize and understand that. You know, but it's also important that we recognize this. We need to be very careful about the lines that we draw that we call the standard or the rules that we set. What I would encourage you to do is this. Whatever God's rules and standard are, Use that as a basis in your home and your family and every other area of your life. Because what happens to us is we draw other lines and then we try to tell somebody, you're out of line. You're out of order. And we stifle creativity. We stifle individuality. We stifle a person who's going to grow on their own and become their own person in the Lord. And what I want to encourage you to do is just because somebody doesn't do things the way you would do them or the way you want it to be done doesn't mean that they're unruly or out of line. You need to check and see if the line that you drew lines up with God's lines. 
because there's a lot of room for individuality and creativity and God doesn't want us to be all the same. You never want all your children to be exactly like the other and don't ever compare your children to another one. Why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you be more like your sister? And you know what happens? Those people you compare them to, they hate the person they're compared to and they didn't even do any of it. They're just them. And God's saying the same thing in his family. Hey, I don't want to compare you to this person or me to that person or any of us to each other. We are who we are in the Lord and allow ourselves the freedom to grow in that area. But we're to admonish those who are out of line according to God's standard. We're also to do the second thing, encourage the faint-hearted. I love this. Look at what it says. Encourage the faint-hearted. What does that mean? Those who are afraid to step out in faith. Like right now, here's a couple that wants to follow God's leading and go with him to a mission field in Alaska, a place they've never been, and there's a million questions that they don't understand. But see, that's faith, isn't it? The conviction of things hoped for, the things that aren't yet seen, knowing that, hey, God is in control. And there's a couple that wants to go to, to Alaska to step out in faith. Here's what God says we're supposed to be doing right now, family partnership. We're to encourage the faint-hearted, those who are afraid to step out in faith and follow God's leading in their life. We need more people who encourage one another to follow God's leading in their life rather than give them 50 reasons why it's not going to work. I love it. When I started teaching this class, Pastor Al Fox is on staff. I love Pastor Fox because I went to him and I was teaching a fundamental faith class and I said, hey, what do we do now? Because I just had come to this church. I was new at this church, didn't know how it worked. And he said, well, well, gee, Chuck, we, we have Sunday school classes that they can go and be a part of. And I said, well, but they, don't, they want to start their own class. Here's what he said. Well, gee, we've never done that here. But let's give it a shot. I love that man. You know why I love that man? Because he didn't say, we've never done it here, period. What he said was, we've never done it here, but if that's the way God's leading, let's go for it. He didn't quite say it like that. But that's how I took it. I loved it. Let's go for it! Yeah! All right. Can you imagine what we could be doing for the kingdom of God if we encouraged one another to follow the direction and the leading, the passion, the God and the dreams that God put on each other's heart and said, hey, it's crazy to me, but if you think that's what God wants you to do, go for it! And we'll pray for you, and we'll send you money, and we'll encourage you, and we'll listen to the response, and hey, go for it! Wouldn't that be wonderful to be in a family where people around you told you you could be anything that God wanted you to be and we're going to encourage you and support you and be there for you. Go for it. I'll tell you, you know who ends up being successful in life are the people that have that kind of support structure around them. You see it and you hear it all the time. People that come from backgrounds with no education, no finances available. And I, and I, I saw a guy being interviewed yesterday who was a, uh, an athlete that was playing for a college and he had ten brothers and sisters and his mom worked doing laundry and they didn't have a dime. They had no extra money in their life and all ten of their children went on to become professionals, doctors, fortunately no attorneys, um, <laughs> doctors and, and, and contractors and, and, uh, and, and heating and air conditioning guys. Oh man, it was great to hear it. It was exciting. It was exciting to hear it. Because why? They were encouraged. They encouraged the faint-hearted. Look, it says, help the weak. Help the weak. Who are the weak? 
The weak are the ones that are new in their faith. The weak are the ones that don't know, understand God's grace and liberty that he gives. The weak are the ones in Roman law who used to continue to do things according to Jewish tradition. They would continue to do the, the sacrifices. They would continue to, to show up because they were supposed to do that. And they were the ones that were given liberty and freedom and grace in Christ and they didn't know how to, how to handle that. They were the ones that, you know, that wouldn't eat the meat anymore because it had been sacrificed to idols versus the one that says, I don't care if it's sacrificed to idols. We got a great price on it and we don't serve them anyway. We serve a living God and let's have some filet. See, those are the people that were under grace and understood it. The weak people were those that say, oh, I'm afraid to do that because this is the way we've always done things and this is the way we have to do things. There's the ones that this is, we come to church because we have to come to church, not even because we want to be here. And then when we're here, we're not even paying attention anyway because I'm writing out stuff I've got to do this week and here's a present for Johnny and here's another one for Sally and here's... See, those are the weak. The weak are the ones that say, hey, you got freedom in Christ. Enjoy it, baby. This is good stuff. And also, be patient with all men. Ooh. That may be a suggestion. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's not. Just kidding you. Be patient with all men. That's saying you just be patient with Christians. This is being patient with that crummy boss you have, with that teacher you have, with that idiot coach that you have, with a nut, wacko, fruitcake person driving next to you on the freeway. This is being patient with all men. Oh, and you don't realize. (laughs) You don't even realize how much I've grown because of you. All right, next. Oh, and here's another one. See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil. You see that? Don't repay another with evil for evil. Think about how stupid that is. Think about how much trouble we get into when we do that. I can't wait to get even with this person. Ask uh, Latrell Sprewell, uh, formerly of the Golden State Warriors, whose coach gave him a hard time and he just couldn't handle it anymore. So he just thought what I'd do is I'll just choke him and kill him. Think about that. That was a $24 million decision. $24 million bucks. That's how much he hated his coach. I'll choke him and I'll kill him. And then I'll come back and hit him. We do some of the dumbest things when we try to get even with one another. This is a command. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Give it up. We do dumb stuff. I like the story that I heard about two guys that went uh, pheasant hunting. They drove up to this farm, and they go up to the farmer, and the one guy says, hey, you wait in the car, I'll go up to the farmer, and I'll see if we can hunt on his property. So the guy goes up and talks to the farmer, says, hey, we'd like to hunt on your property, we've got a cornfield, we'd like to go pheasant hunting, and the guy says who owns the farm, hey, that's fine, you can hunt here, but i got a problem. You see that old gray mare sitting out in the pasture? And the guy goes, yeah. He says, well, listen, that mare's been in our family forever, and, and, and she's sick, and she's dying, and what we need to do is I, I need to put her to sleep, but I can't do it because, you know, family. Uh, would you go and shoot her? And if you go and shoot her, I'll let you hunt on our property. So the guy goes, well, that's going to be hard for me to do. I'll go ahead and do it too. But uh, anyway, he goes back to his friend and he goes, he thought he'd pull a trick on him. He says, you know, can you believe this guy? He's got this big farm. He won't even let us hunt on it. I can't believe this guy. How can anybody be so selfish like that? He goes like this. He said, you see that horse over there? I'm going to show him something. So he walked over to the horse, pulled out his gun, shot it head. Boom, he killed it. He said, Dad, that'll teach him. And his buddy goes, hey, I'll be right back. And he goes running, and he's gone for a second, he hears, boom, boom! His buddy comes running back and says, hey, I just got two of his cows, let's get out of here. <laughs> Sometimes we do dumb stuff when we try to get even with other people. 
All right, where are we at? We're running out of time. Let's do this. Verse 16. Rejoice always. Command. Rejoice always. Joy to the world. Rejoice always. And again I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to God. For the Lord is near. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Rejoice always. Let me ask you a question. Give yourself a little self-test here, a little self-exam. How are you doing so far? We're supposed to be busy doing this while we wait for the Lord to call us home or come back. How are you doing? Rejoice always. Sometimes I look around and I see people that are the most miserable people I've ever seen in my life. And they've come to praise the Lord. And you go, man, it's like some of you witness an autopsy on the way here. <laughs> Rejoice always. It's a choice. It goes beyond our circumstances. So you're having a tough time financially. You're having a tough time in your marriage. You're having a tough time at work. You're having a tough time with your health. You're having a tough time growing older. So what? Rejoice always. And again, I'm going to say it, rejoice. Why? Because it's a command from our commanding officer who calls us to be joyful in the presence of people who have no hope and are miserable because they don't know what tomorrow holds. We got all the answers. You're miserable. Why? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Are you a child of God? If you die today because of the aches and the pains and all that you have, and He calls you home, will you not be in the presence of the Lord? What in the world do you have to be miserable about? Rejoice always. Wow. And the last thing, and we'll put it all together, is this. Bear with me. Family worship. You know what we're supposed to be doing while we wait for Jesus to come again? We are supposed to be worshiping God. Isn't that great? Worship is the most important activity that God's kids can be doing while we wait for Him to come back or to call us home. We are here on this earth to worship God so that the world around us will wonder what in the world is going on. To worship God. And when we worship God, service flows out of worship naturally. If we are not worshiping God, you will not want to serve other human beings because it will be a busy activity and there will be no love behind it. But when you worship God, service to one another naturally flows out of that. That's what drives me crazy about programs and stuff the churches try to put together. We need a program. We don't need a program. We need people who worship God, that love the Lord, and say, hey, what can I be doing while I'm here as a response to my love for God? You can't set up programs and have people that don't love God and worship Him heading those programs up because no one will want to be a part of those programs. You can't find people to head up small groups, for example, as a ministry, who don't love God first and then love people second. Because when people show up at their house, they're going to see nothing but misery and they're going to see people witness autopsies and it's going to feel like you just got shoved in a cold lake on a winter's day and you can't wait to get out of there. But when there's warmth and love, man, you want to be there. We're supposed to be worshiping God. But you know, we've all become, churches are becoming entertainment centers. 
Let's, let's not tell people we're here to worship God. Let's not even use Bibles. Let's not even open up our Bibles. Let's just make people feel good about being here. Hey, you know what? I want us to worship God to the point where people that don't know God sit there next to you and say, you know what? There's something different about them than me, and I need to know what's going on. That's what worship does. You say, well, what is worship? Real quick, here it is. And he lays it all out. Number one, prayer. See what he says? Pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean stop praying, but it means that we would continually be thoughtful of prayer in our life. Worship involves prayer. And you can pray anytime and anywhere. You can pray going down the 55 freeway for Jesus Christ to come into your life and forgive you of your sins. You don't have to go somewhere designated for prayer. You can pray in your classroom, and God knows I did that many times as the test was broken out of the packet and it came down toward me. Oh, Lord, please bring back to remembrance all the things that I studied. I never asked him to do anything that I didn't do for myself to begin with, but Lord, remind me of what I studied. Make it clear. When you're standing at the plate, oh, Lord, you know what? Please let me see this pitch coming at me before it hits me. I don't care where you are. Hey, when I run, I constantly pray. Lord, how can I, how can I what, what, what illustration can I use to help your people understand your word in a way that when they leave, they'll apply it in their life? Lord, and, and it's continual prayer. When you're driving in your vehicle, you can be praying. It's when you're at your house, you can be praying. When you're in your neighborhood, you can be praying. When you're taking your walk, you can be praying. Prayer is an essential part of worship. Why? Because it opens up a line of communication between you and your God. God, hear my prayer. And God always hears the prayer of a repentant sinner that says, forgive me, and I believe in Jesus Christ. And God continues to hear our prayers every day after that takes place. Prayer. Praise. Praise. The Bible says that we're to praise God. Spirit, look, praise God with, with uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That when we're singing, we're singing praise to God. How can you praise God and be excited for what He's done in your life when you, when you sing with... When, joy to the world the Lord has come oh please well you know what we're going to do here's what we're going to do in 98 this is you know El Nino 98 here's what we're going to do every one of you at some point in 98 are going to come right down here and you're going to sit here and you're going to watch people sing and then you're going to go back to your seat and your life's going to be transformed because you're going to see what God sees. Praise God! You want to clap your hands, clap your hands. You want to raise your hands, raise your hands. The bottom line is this. Praise God from a grateful heart, and that's worship. The Word of God. You can't worship God without the Word of God. Because when we teach and preach from the Word of God, it gives God the glory and it gives Him the praise and His Word goes out and it doesn't come back empty and it changes hearts and lives. And God help us if we ever become like a whole bunch of churches in our country and around the world that don't even open their Bibles anymore and they don't even read the Word of God. You know what he says here? Look what he says in verse 27. I urge you by the Lord to have, have this letter read to all the brethren. The purpose of getting together as a family of God is to read the Word of God in the presence of God's people. He says, I urge you to open the book, to open the letter and read it in front of everyone so that we are mindful and we remember that God's Word is, His, is truth and His truth will set us free. The Word of God. Godly living. He goes on and says, hey, you know what? 
Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And faithful is God who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. And he goes on to talk about fellowship. He says, hey, you know what? Pray for us. We need to pray for one another. I would hope that you'd pray for me. Because if you knew me like I know me, you'd be praying more regularly. We need to pray for those who want to step out in faith, the weak-hearted. Pray for them that they'd have courage and strength to go and to be obedient to the calling of God in their life. We need to be praying for one another. It says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Just so you understand, guys kiss guys and ladies kiss ladies. All right, That's the way it was, and that was the understanding of it. But it was a greeting that says, hey, you know what? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are part of the family of God. I'm so glad that I see you. I'm so glad that you're here. I want to encourage you by giving you a hug and by giving you a kiss. I love you, brother. I love you, man. That's what he's saying. Fellowship. And the last thing is this. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Isn't that good stuff? Family leadership. Appreciate those who have leadership over you. Love them. Obey them. Family partnership. Admonish. Encourage. Help. Be patient, be joyful, family worship, pray, praise the Word of God, and then live it. Let me ask you something. How are you doing? That wasn't too hard to understand, was it? The hard part will be being obedient and doing what God calls you to do. But just so you understand, that is what we are to be doing while we wait for Jesus Christ to come again. Father, thank you for your Word. We thank you for this letter to the Thessalonians. We just pray that we can uh, not only hear the word, but we would receive it gladly and then be obedient in our lives. And we just thank you for your word. We thank you for how it changes hearts and lives as we apply it. And we just pray for anyone that's here today that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they'll understand that these commands are not for them, that the only commandment to them is that they would believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. God, we just thank you and we praise you that it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from you so that none of us will ever be able to brag or boast as we walk the streets of heaven. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.